Aye. Wachowski? Aye. Aye. Wiener? Aye. Aye. Wilk? No. Ayes 21, noes 11, the measure passes. What did I say? I'm sorry. Ayes 29, uh, noes 11, the measure passes. I'm not used to seeing so many eyes on the dim side, I guess. That was the vote by the California State Senate to pass Governor Newsom's budget, which now goes to him for signing. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm John Fensterwald. Co-host Louis Friedberg is away this week. This Thursday, the legislature passed the 2019-20 state budget. The budget is noteworthy in its attention to the needs of low-income families and for efforts to combat homelessness and expand housing. But there's lots to talk about education, too. It's Gavin Newsom's first budget, and it's a blueprint for his priorities. Lots of money for early education, including his commitment to universal access to preschool. And there's help for districts with pension costs that are eating into their budgets and an initiative to bring more teachers into the classroom. I'll be speaking with EdSource reporter Zadie Stavely later about the early education piece in the budget. But first, I turn to Jonathan Kaplan, the senior policy analyst working on K-12 and tax policy for the California Budget and Policy Center in Sacramento. Jonathan is a former history teacher. He's in the studio with us and welcome. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, John. What's your overall take of Gavin Newsom's first budget? Well, I think Gavin Newsom's first budget spells very good news for both K-12 schools and higher education. I I, I think we have a lot to be uh, looking at in a positive frame here regarding what the governor both proposed in January and where the budget ended up uh, in June. I think it's worth taking a step back and thinking about where we were in January. There was a fairly ambitious agenda that the governor put forth around the education agenda writ large that very much included early childhood education, but also proposed to be pretty consistent with the previous governor's view of uh, providing funding for the local control funding formula and, you know, basically supporting that, that which is an important part of what uh, the state does in terms of K-12 education. And I think it's also important to think about the concerns that were expressed around what might happen for the state's economy. And we are in a fairly healthy economy today, which is really the reason why uh, revenues are at the level that they are. And that is a big part of why we have the resources to spend on K-12 education. So I think we're in good shape with regard to K-12 schools and community colleges, as well as also the rest of the higher education system. And uh, that's good news for the state. You mentioned consistency in supporting, say, local control funding formula, which he inherited from Jerry Brown. But do you get a sense of Gavin Newsom's priorities and his imprint on a budget that you'll look back and say, oh, yeah, this was the first Gavin Newsom budget, and I can see why? Um, Sure. I think there are some definite ways in which the governor has made his imprint on the state's education systems. He had a fairly ambitious agenda and has uh, proposed funding for special education, for example. He's also improved funding for teacher preparation. And also, uh, I think it's significant to note that he has made you know, some fiscally prudent decisions in terms of uh, funding pension obligations that uh, I would say is also responsive to the field, so to speak. Talk a little bit about what is this pension relief and what will it do for districts? Yeah, so the governor put forth a proposal in January to both pay down school district and county office of education pension liabilities that would provide rate relief, that is relief for school districts for the 2019-20 and 2021 years, and also to provide funding for the state 
portion of its unfunded obligation for school district pensions. And I think that does speak to a responsiveness on the governor to what was happening in the field. Uh, Governor Newsom also addresses a teacher shortage in the budget. Could you talk about that? Sure. There was an important proposal that was put forth by the governor in terms of addressing the teacher shortage. And where the budget ended up was $90 million for a new program called the Golden State Teacher Grant Program. So that's going to provide funding for high-need subject areas such as bilingual education, STEM, and special education as well as also probably for school districts that have high numbers of permits and waivers. So it is definitely a good proposal to try to address the teacher shortage in those areas. Yeah. Do you think it'll make a difference? Um, I think this is a very good first step and a start. It will put a dent. The question will be how much, but certainly the governor and the legislature deserve credit for addressing the issue. So let's go back to uh, special education. And that was the one area that the governor and the legislature really disagreed. Talk about that and how it ended up. The way things ended up is that the governor's approach, which would have revamped certain ways in which the allocation to special education worked, was rejected. And instead, about $150 million of a $650 million total outlay went to equalization or sort of getting to a base rate for funding for SELPAs out in the state. And $500 million went to special education early intervention grants. The equalizing, meaning their disparate rates of funding students with disabilities throughout the state and through these SELPAs, these regional agencies, it's an effort to make the rate the same or approach it, right? And this doesn't do it, but it takes a step in the right direction? That's correct. The idea is to move closer to this target rate. And for the early childhood piece of it, students who are handicapped, were state mandates that they receive attention, but in fact, the state has not funded that age group, right? So this is an important switch. That's correct. I mean, the mandate is a federal mandate uh, that these children are provided access to education and school districts at the age of three are required to provide these services to these children. But the state has not provided funding and the federal government funding for these children does not nearly come close to what it is that it costs to actually provide the services for these children. So this is a step towards helping to fill in that funding. I wonder if you could touch on, for a moment, higher education, which I know you keep track of as well. Yeah, so the state budget is also very good news for the higher education segments in the state. We have increased funding for enrollment at the UC and CSU, $50 million for UC, $85 million for CSU. Those are increases that I think those segments would be happy about. There's also increases in the Cal Grant system that are pretty important and significant. The competitive Cal Grants that are awarded for non-traditional students, students who are more than a year out of high school and are considered non-traditional, there was a significant increase in funding in awards that translate to about 15,000 of those uh, awards, and also Cal Grant awards for students with dependent children. So the Cal Access Grant Award, you know, more than $100 million in funding for non-tuition aid for those students out there that have kids. So these are pretty important pieces of building out an agenda, I think, that the governor deserves credit for in terms of trying to address some of the needs that are out there in the state. And yeah, I think that's good news for the higher education. Well, Jonathan, thank you for coming in and summarizing 80 plus billion dollars in just a few minutes and giving us a good sense of what's ahead. Happy to have done it, John.
Governor Newsom campaigned on a pledge to focus on early education, and his first budget certainly is a big installment on that promise, covering many aspects from infant care to preschool. Early education reporter Zadie Stavely has been tracking the budget from January to now, and she joins me in the studio. Welcome, Zadie. Hi, John. So Governor Newsom promised a holistic approach to children, health care, child care, preschool, children's overall well-being, dealing with the underlying conditions of poverty and home life. Zadie, give us the highlights of what's in the budget for California's youngest residents. Well, John, everyone is talking about it kind of as a down payment. Like, this is not where we need to be, but it's a huge step forward. I do think it's pretty holistic. Of course, there's the promise for changing paid family leave from six weeks to eight weeks per person. So each parent could take eight weeks potentially. There is money in there for building new childcare and preschool facilities, which is a huge deal and really important in California because nonprofit providers and family childcare home providers have a really hard time finding the money and the places to actually build new childcare centers or expand their family childcare homes. And if we don't have those buildings, there won't be a way to provide more care. There's money in there for more subsidized childcare and more preschool. So there's money for 21,000 more low income and moderate income children to have access to care either from zero to three or as preschoolers. And in the preschool, it's 10,000 slots. So it's less than what Governor Newsom had promised in January. In January, he'd said 30,000 over three years. And in May, he said 10,000 beginning in April 2020. And let's see where we go after that. So the budget only includes 10,000 more slots for full day subsidized preschool, but they changed the eligibility. So this is something that comes from AB 123, which is Kevin McCarty's bill he's calling pre-K for all, but it's not for all. Basically, they're changing the eligibility so that not only low-income children would be eligible for state-subsidized preschool, but also children who live in neighborhoods where most of the kids going to the elementary school, more than 70% of the kids going to the local elementary school, qualify for free or reduced price lunch. So if you live in the neighborhood, even if you make more, your child would be able to go to the state-subsidized preschool if there's a slot. And that's the caveat, because since there's only 10,000 more slots, there probably aren't enough slots for all of those kids. But the idea is that they're at least expanding the eligibility as a start. And that's a big deal. So if you had to pick one area where the biggest inroad was met, what what is that? In preschool or is it child care? I actually think that the facilities funding is a huge deal. They're putting $300 million towards um, full-day kindergarten and transitional kindergarten classrooms. So those can be used either for four-year-olds who will turn five before December 2nd or for five-year-olds. And they're putting about $245 million towards child care facilities, so non-LEA, so not school districts, and $239 million for facilities on CSU campuses, child care facilities on CSU campuses. That's a really big deal. I don't know how many facilities would be able to be built with that money, but it seems like a big inroad. And there's also money in the budget for training childcare providers to either allow them to go get more classes on college campuses or get preparation in a certain field, like teaching children who speak another language other than English at home. And so this idea of preparing childcare providers and giving them the ability to go to school and get more qualifications and also 
building more facilities, both of those are obstacles to actually providing more care. And so that's a huge deal in California. So in other words, it's thoughtful in the sense that if you want to have universal preschool, you really just can't declare it or fund it. You need buildings, you need training and all that. And this is sort of the steps that lead to that. I'm intrigued by the idea of enabling all children in a neighborhood to attend the local school, not just low-income children. Is this just a paperwork ease, or is there other thinking going on here, too? So there's two things, John. One is, of course, reaching those families who are kind of right on the brink, who maybe make a little bit more money than they need to to qualify for state-subsidized preschool now, but who also cannot afford an, a private preschool tuition. And so their kids may not be going to preschool or they may have some other arrangement. The other thing is to actually get to a point at some point where we're offering universal preschool to all four-year-olds, whether that's through transitional kindergarten or through state preschool. The idea of universal preschool is both to provide everybody care so it's not stigmatized in a certain way, but also I think it has a lot to do with integration. There are studies that show that it's better to have kids from lots of different backgrounds, economic and also ethnic and racial backgrounds, in the same classroom from the time that they're small. It teaches them to work together. It helps everybody do better job academically, socially, etc. So Governor Newsom has said he wants to get to a point where they're offering state preschool to all four-year-olds or some kind of state-subsidized preschool or transitional kindergarten to all four-year-olds. And several of the lawmakers have said the same thing. And there is money in the budget also to try to find a way to do that. That's really interesting. At the end of next year, will most kids from low-income families be going to state preschool? Have we any sense of that? I don't think so, John. (laughs) Right now, only one in nine children who are from the ages of zero to two who are eligible, who are low income, are actually enrolled in state-subsidized child care. And then from three-year-olds and four-year-olds, it's about 20% a fifth of the kids who are actually enrolled in full-day state-subsidized child care or preschool or transitional kindergarten. So we have a long way to go. There are about 745,000 children from zero to five who are eligible for state-subsidized child care or preschool and who are not actually receiving it. Ah, I didn't realize it was that big. So what are the advocates saying, Zadie, about this year's budget? The advocates are saying that this is a huge step, that this is really important, it's significant. Maybe I should qualify that slightly. It's not necessarily a huge step, it's a small but significant step. So it's really important to do kind of this laying the groundwork for getting to the place where California wants to be, but there are so many children in California and there is such a need. There have been so many years when there hasn't been such investments in early childhood education that there's a really long way to go. Moving on from here, is there anything left out that's significant? So one of the things that the legislators wanted to get that they didn't was increased reimbursement rates for subsidized child care providers. So these are people who care for children either in their own homes or in a child care center who are caring for low-income children and getting subsidies from the state. And one of the things that advocates and experts, researchers, have said that California needs to do is increase the reimbursement rates so that those providers can make more and so that they can stay in the field because there is so much turnover. It's really high, higher than K through 12 teacher turnover. And so the legislators tried to do that, and that did not make it into the into the budget in the end. 
there's a lot in the budget. And then at the same time, there are something like 22 bills right now in the legislature that would address early childhood education and early childhood services. So we have a lot to look forward to to see what's next. Definitely a sense of momentum. So Zadie, thanks for joining us, and I know you'll be following it. Thank you, John. The state budget will soon be signed, but a big issue that will be resolved over the summer is whether to put a school facilities bond before voters in 2020 as a bill moving through the legislature proposes. We'll be taking up the facilities issue during a webinar on Tuesday, June 18th at 1 p.m. Among the topics we'll explore, what's the shape of school buildings across the state? How much of a need is there for a new bond? Does a formula for sharing money with districts need to be changed to give poorer districts more access to state funding? Lewis and I will be moderating, and we promise some interesting and informative conversation. So to register, go to our website, edsource.org. We'll see you then. So that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from the Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm John Fensterwald, and Lewis Friedberg will be joining us again next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.